few weeks ago, I don't know if y'all recall, we had a guest visit the church. Anybody remember that? His name was Donald. He uh, had a bicycle. His bicycle had a ton, of, had a lot of plastic bags. How many would you guess, Caleb? Maybe, yeah, it was something like that, maybe 40 plastic bags were attached. Well, Donald came to us. He actually uh, went to the Chick-fil-A because he figured that would be a good place to go. I've worked there, so I know it is. Uh, somebody paid for him to stay at the motor inn for a few nights. They bought him a bicycle. So he rode up his bicycle on that Sunday morning to our church to visit because he had run out of you know nights to stay at the motor inn. So he came to visit, sat through part of the service. Hal actually occupied him for a portion of the service and conversation. Um, but he, he's from Louisiana originally, and he eventually wants to make his way home, but this, he, he had kind of run out of nights at the motor inn, and, and he needed help. Um, but so after explaining to him that we don't really do, you know, we don't pay for nights at the motor inn, because that's not really a, you know, it's not going to bring resolution, or it's, it's just going to get him through one more night, um, we were about to say uh, farewell. But after a short conversation with my wife and uh, consulted with her about, you know, where he wanted to go and what he wanted to do next, he actually indicated that he was willing to go to the shelter in Athens, because that's what we do with homeless folks is we refer them, and Fish does the same thing. They say, we're willing, the police are willing to take you up to Athens. And so we were about to call the police and say, you know what, this guy needs a ride up to Athens, but then we had the problem with the bicycle, because his bicycle is not going to fit in the back of a police cruiser. So Jeff generously offered to put, put the bicycle in the back of his truck, and uh, Caleb and I offered to ride it along. And before we took him up to Athens, Lee Dillard invited him to lunch. So we had about 10 people over at Popeye's, and Donald's sitting there on his phone. He had kind of gotten preoccupied with some question. Um, he was, you know, not altogether there, but still pretty, pretty high-functioning. And uh, then after, you know, he had a nice lunch, I think he got a five-strip meal to go. Because he said he wasn't hungry, but he took it with him. Um, we drove all the way to Athens. So there we are, Jeff's truck, me, Donald, Caleb, and Jeff. And we're all squished, squished in the front part of his truck. And then there's a, a bicycle in the back with about 40 different plastic bags with all of his, you know, earthly belongings. And so we go all the way up to Hawthorne Avenue. I don't know if you all know it's there. There's a, a Salvation Army shelter that has 55 beds. So we pulled up. He didn't even want to get out. He wanted me to go talk to them and find out the details, so I did. They said that they opened at 6 o'clock. This is probably about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So then he makes the strange request. He says, take me back to the Goodwill across town. I mean, we're on Hawthorne Avenue. He wants to go all the way back to Goodwill. And he says, but I'll come back by 6 o'clock. So we take him over to Goodwill, drop him off, unload all of his bags one by one. He, he ties them back up to the bicycle and uh, said a quick prayer and then farewell to Donald. Now, the truth is, is I don't know that he ever intended to go to the shelter. But he figured that if he said he wanted to go to the shelter, he might get a ride to Athens. But regardless of that fact, I think we were pretty pleased and we were grateful. I mean, there was somebody who contributed gas money uh, that we were able to bless our neighbor. We weren't upset about doing that. We had no regrets. Now, we have all had experiences. You and I have all had experiences where we were reluctant to spend ourselves to help others. Anybody had an experience like that? You're, you know, somebody needs something, they're asking for something, and you're a little bit reluctant to spend yourself to help them. Maybe the approach was aggressive. You ever been approached aggressively for help? Yeah. Maybe uh, the story seemed full of holes. I mean, there were a few holes in this story as we kind of investigated. Maybe the storyteller seemed disoriented or maybe a little possibly manipulative. It was down in Aldi in Orlando. 
And this lady came up, she was very sun weathered, was missing quite a few teeth, and she was asking me for money. Man, I didn't have any cash in my pocket, but thankfully Charlotte Dillard had given me a $2 bill. And I gave that to her, and she was really impressed with that $2 bill because it was going to help her supposedly get to the bus station. So sometimes you think they're up to something, and you're reluctant to, to give them help. And after finding some way to decline these kind of requests, we tend to comfort ourselves with the thought that our help probably wouldn't have made a difference, right? I could have helped. I could have bought them a meal. I could have given them money, but they probably would have misused it. So that's how we comfort ourselves. In fact, we even say, maybe, maybe my help would have actually hurt, so I probably did the right thing. But today, we're going to talk about a story in Scripture. There was someone in Scripture who was assured. He was assured that his intervention in the situation would not change the outcome. Can you imagine that? Somebody comes to you for help, and you know for sure, for sure, that your help's not going to make any difference. But his choice was to continue to do what was right in God's eyes, even when he was confident that his intervention would not make a difference. King Josiah was a man, and he was, he was the king that he became king at eight years old. Eight years old. In fact, his mother, um, or the, the woman who wanted to be queen, kind of tried to rub him out, but he survived. But he's now 26 years old, and he became aware that disaster was imminent for both himself and his people. And his decisive response ensured that though the nation would not ultimately be spared, it would not happen in his lifetime. And at this point, it would have been understandable for his concern to go away. But that's not what happened. His desire to do the right thing before the Lord compelled him to act even when God indicated he had no intention of changing his mind. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 22, 2 Kings chapter 22. We're going to read some select verses, beginning in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. I believe it was Athaliah who tried to rub him out. He was the only one that survived. And he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah from Bozkath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor, David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. And if you know the kings of Israel, this was very unlike the norm. The ones before him, like Manasseh, the ones after him. So he was very different. He was unique. His priority was pleasing God and following the example of his ancestor David. And David was called what? Called a man after God's own what? Heart. Man after God's own heart. So he followed in the footsteps of David. His right, but, but, his righteous desire did not mean that he was equipped to lead Israel. I mean, he has, his heart is in the right place. He wants to honor God, but that's not saying that he was equipped to do the job. In fact, unbeknownst to Josiah, he was missing some key information that was essential to putting Israel back on the right path. In other words, he saw the symptoms. He knew that things were not well, but he didn't know why. He didn't know how to fix it. He was missing some key information. You ever try putting something together, man, and you get close to completing the project before you look at the instructions. You ever done that? And you know what happens, and this has happened to me on more than one occasion. You get almost done putting together that shelf, putting together that project, and then you look at the instructions. What do you find? You made a mistake, right, in putting it together. And unfortunately, it wasn't a mistake on the last step. 
It wasn't a mistake on the first step. It was a mistake on the second or the third. And so all that work, all those steps, you've got to go all the way back and tear the entire thing down and rebuild it to spec. Well, Josiah didn't even have the manual, as we're about to find out. Josiah didn't even have the manual to show the depths that Israel had fallen to under King Manasseh. They had such little regard for the law of the Lord, you know, the first five books. They had such little regard for the law of the Lord that it lay unused in the temple of God. They didn't even know it was there. And it would be accidentally stumbled upon. But aren't some of us like this? And you know, we've got the word of God. We've got truth. But it kind of sits on the shelf, doesn't it? And when do we get it down? When do we get it down off the shelf? When do we blow the dust off the cover? When we need something. When we need something, right? When it's a time crisis. Crisis causes us to return to the word. Here's what happened next in this story. So Josiah wants to do the right thing, but he doesn't know how. He doesn't have all the information. He doesn't have all the tools. He doesn't have the manual to know how to diagnose the problem and fix things. So here's what happened next. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Now, can you imagine this? Think of how dependent David, Solomon, were on the words of God when it came to leadership, when it came to leading the country. But now the king himself doesn't even have the Bible, doesn't even have the word of God. It's been discarded. It's been thrown aside. They're not even paying attention. So the high priest says, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. But they're probably not sure whether Josiah's going to care. Right? They've had lots of experience with kings. And the kings typically don't care what the word of the Lord even says. So Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Shaphan went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors of the temple. Another good thing that decided it was rebuilding the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king, the entire law. And when the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Because he realized when that came off the shelf, He'd been missing out. He was missing some key information of what God expected, of what the consequences would be for disobedience. He was missing some key information. And he was so upset that he tore his clothes in despair. The king tore his clothes. Then he gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahakam son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the court secretary, and Isaiah the king's personal advisor. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me. Because at that time, the king didn't just go to the temple. By himself. They had to have the, the representative go and speak to the Lord. But he says, go and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and for all to inquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For the, and this is how he diagnosed it. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. And that's what happens to us too, doesn't it? We kind of get off course. We forget the word of God, we leave it on the shelf, and then we pull it down, we realize, I haven't been doing. I mean, so maybe some of the things that are going wrong in your life and my life, it's because we've forgotten the word. We put it on the shelf. We refer to it in our memories, but we're not conversant. We're not reading it. We're not, you know, consuming the word of God daily. 
We have not been doing everything it says we must do. So Josiah becomes aware, number two, that disaster is imminent. So he was doing what was right in the Lord's eyes. He was missing some information, and now he knows what the problem is. He knows what's coming, what's about to happen. Disaster is imminent. People are in trouble. Proverbs says that a prudent man sees danger coming, changes direction. How many times are you and I guilty of seeing danger in the distance and assuming that we still have plenty of time to change course, right? I mean, we know we're not on a good path. We know we're not making great choices. We know we're headed toward hardship. But we got time. We got time to fix this. But Josiah doesn't respond this way. When he recognizes that Israel's on a slippery slope to destruction, he decisively instructs his servants to immediately seek out a person who speaks for God, and when they find her, it's interesting, it's a prophetess. When they find her, this is how she responds. And Josiah is about to be encouraged. And he's also about to be given a get-out-of-jail-free card that does not extend to the rest of the nation. And we're going to see how he responds to that. Because it's not going to be like you would expect. But she said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll, because it's right there. It's been there all the time. They just weren't looking. They weren't reading it. That the king of Judah has read will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will burn against this place, and I will not. It will not be quenched. But, here's the encouraging part for Josiah. But, go to the king of Judah, who sent you to seek the Lord, and tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry. You humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I said against this city and its people, that this land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in so Josiah's responded correctly. He's heard the word of the Lord. He's read it. He's been moved by it. He's been broken by it. And he's ready to receive and ready to repent and to lead again. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord, so I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not even see the disaster I'm going to bring on this. So they took her message back. So the third point today is that Josiah finds favor in God's eyes. I mean, Josiah's been, he's been pretty impressive so far, right? I mean, God is about to do something. He's about to judge his people. They've earned it. They've had it coming for a long time. But Josiah's response impresses God. Remember, he's only 26 at the time. Wisdom beyond his years. God is so impressed that he promises to delay judgment until after the reign of Josiah. And here's the key thought. At this point, we would expect that Josiah would be content with this, right? Things are terrible. I've responded well. God's granted me a reprieve. You know, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. You'd think he would be satisfied with this. I mean, this would not be a black mark on his record. Kings were judged by what happened during their reign. This black mark would be on somebody else's record. And if he lives a full life, it could be another 50 or 60 years before he's no longer able to leave and Israel's in jeopardy again. So 
you would think he'd just say, I'm good. I responded correctly. I've done my part. In fact, this reminds me of another story in the Old Testament where King Hezekiah, you remember this? It's in Isaiah 36 through 39 when Assyria attacks and Israel is rescued. Well, Hezekiah makes the mistake of inviting Babylon in to look at all his gold and his treasures. And then as a result, God says, because you've done this, Babylon's going to come in vain. And Hezekiah, you know, he's troubled until God says, but it won't happen in your lifetime. And then Hezekiah relaxes. And as far as we can tell, he doesn't do anything. Because he, he feels like it's inevitable. He can't do anything about it. But at least it's not going to happen during my lifetime, so I can relax. He even says to himself, he says to the Lord, what you've said is good. Because he thought to himself, it won't happen in my lifetime. So you would think that this might be Josiah's attitude. But this assurance that it will happen in his lifetime does not stop Josiah from continuing to do what he believes is right. Here's what he does. Chapter 23, verse 1. This is after he's been given that assurance. The king summoned all the elders of Judah in Jerusalem. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah in Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. And there the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. Now can you imagine that, Caleb? Having to sit and listen to the entire Bible being read. How could he talk to all of them? Because there's like a million people. How could his voice stretch? Now that, I bet you they had criers, you know, people relaying the words of the king to reach a crowd like that. Can you imagine sitting there? You, you've never even picked up a Bible. You've never heard the priest read from the law, and now the king of the land is humbling himself. He's reading from the law of the Lord, the entire law of the Lord, and they're probably sitting there from morning to afternoon or possibly evening. He reads the entire covenant. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul publicly. In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll, and the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So we see, lastly, that Josiah is not satisfied. He is not satisfied that he will be spared. And I know this is going to hit close to home with you because it hits close to home with me. A lot of times we're guilty of this. You know, my, my passport is stamped. My salvation, I, I mean, it's guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. I know where I'm going, right, when I leave this earthly plane. And God willing, you know where you're going when you leave this earthly plane. But how many times are we guilty of being satisfied that we're going to be spared? And we look at our nation, we were talking about it this morning, and we're troubled. We're upset. Our spirit is concerned. Our hearts are broken at what we see. But then when it comes down to actually doing something about it, the truth is, is that we're too easily satisfied. Because in our hearts, in our minds, we know we're going to despair. But this was not Josiah's attitude. This was Hezekiah's attitude, right? He was satisfied. The Lord's word is good. It won't happen in my lifetime. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to coast because you've got your toast. Now, I'm going to coast, but you guys are toast. Sorry, see, I've got to go, right? But Josiah was not satisfied with his own salvation. And this reminds me of the Apostle Paul. His own miraculous conversion, remember Paul? His miraculous conversion moved him to make every effort to appeal to others. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 says this. It says, when I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone. I want to find common ground with everyone. Doing everything I can to save some. Paul was committed. He, he knew, he believed that his service could make a difference. His sharing could make a difference. He went to great lengths to share the gospel. But to me, what is even more remarkable about this story with Josiah is that Josiah did not act to avert disaster. He didn't act to avert disaster. Disaster was guaranteed. I mean, there was no guarantee. And eventually, there was no reprieve. But he still did what was right. What was going on in his mind? I mean, talk about lost cause. God had promised that disaster was coming. So why did Josiah respond like this? That's what I was thinking to myself as I was reading it. And the reason is because it was right. He didn't do it because it was going to work. Uh-oh. I'm guilty of that. It's like, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to do it. This isn't going to help. I'm not going to do it. I don't think this is going to change anything. I'm not going to do it. And then we've got this convicting example. Josiah was guaranteed that nothing would change. He did it anyway. He did the right thing. Anyway, he honored the Lord anyway. It wasn't about whether or not it worked. It was whether or not it was right. So the question for us is, are we waiting to act until we're convinced it's going to work? I know that's me. I'm honest. I size up a situation. I size up an opportunity. Somebody's asking for help. Somebody needs something. And I'm, I'm asking myself, is this worth it? Is this going to make a difference? And I get kind of shrewd. You know, I want to be wise with my resources. But this leads to convenient refusals, right? It's just not convenient. It's self-concern. But the second response is somebody who's looking to be obedient. That's all they care about. Am I being obedient? Am I being obedient? They're not looking and saying, is it going to work? Is it going to work? They're saying, am I being obedient? When I'm confronted with this situation, am I being obedient? Am I doing what God's calling me to do? Am I doing what God's asking me to do? And this actually conditions our response. You ever picked up a golf club, tennis racket, basketball, or maybe even a power tool, knitting needle after a significant interlude? I mean, you might be a bit rusty at first, but what happens after just a few moments? Somebody serves that ball. Somebody gives you that crochet. What happens? comes back to you, doesn't it? You might be a bit rusty at it, but I get out there and shoot a jump shot. After a couple shots, I'm feeling it. You know, it's feeling pretty good. And this is because your hours of practice have developed a conditioned response, right? A conditioned response, or even you could call it a reflex. And this is where I believe God wants to lead us. He wants to lead you. He wants to lead me. When we encounter dire circumstances... Because they're out there. They're in here. They're in our lives. They're in our churches. They're in our community. Dire circumstances are out there. You don't have to look very far. But he wants us to be conditioned to care. Just like Josiah does. Even if it doesn't change anything, he wants us to be conditioned to care. Conditioned to have our hearts broken and conditioned to respond and to act. 
The big idea today is that God's Word teaches us. God's Word teaches us to spend ourselves to save others. God's Word teaches us to spend ourselves to save others. Let me illustrate this. Recently, I referred a disabled man to fish. And after thorough consultation, Fish decided that this isn't a case they would typically get involved in. His circumstances were a little bit extreme, no home, no job. They don't typically get involved, particularly in a financial way, in a situation like this. But moved by compassion, they decided to go above and beyond. They did in this situation. My goodness, they went above and beyond. And there was no guarantee that this situation would significantly change. In fact, I know personally that it has not. But moved by compassion, they did what didn't even make sense. And the reason was this. Because God had conditioned them to care. God had shaped them. He had prepared them. He had conditioned them to care. Time and time again, people come into their office. And most of us would do nothing. But they've been conditioned to find a way to do something. They've been conditioned Even when their involvement guarantees nothing. So what about you today? I mean, let's start with the basics. With, with Like with Josiah, do you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord? Are you trusting and obeying your personal relationship with God? Are you reading scripture? I know I am. I'm doing the basics. I love the Lord. I trust him. I, I want to serve him. Secondly, do you realize that for many people, disaster look around. Maybe they're in your family. Maybe they're in your neighborhood. Maybe they're in the office. Disaster is imminent. I mean, they're, they're headed for a heartache. They're headed for hardship. You might even say they're careening towards the inevitable. Do we even realize that? But when we do see it, when we're confronted with this kind of situation, do we struggle with the attitude of Hezekiah and say, man, that's really bad for you. I'm so sad for you. But what can I do? You know, what, what, what can I do? But the truth is, uh, underneath what's ugly, is that I'm really secretly kind of satisfied that I'm, I'm going to be spared. I'm sad for you, but I know I'm going to be spared. And so in the end, it's just not convenient today. Are you reluctant to spend yourself to save others because you feel it will not make a difference? No, I struggle with that. But you know what? God is, God is looking for people who will do what is right in his eyes, like Josiah, having the right attitude, the right heart, loving the Lord. He's looking for people who will trust and obey. And I, my prayer is that you're those people, that you're trusting him, that you're obeying him. But he's also looking for people who are moved by the plight of others. People who are moved like Josiah. He was assured of his own standing with God, Right? He was good. It wasn't going to happen in his lifetime. He was guaranteed to not see it with his own eyes. But he was not satisfied. He was not satisfied. He was not satisfied that he was going to be spared. And far too easily I am. And God's been convicting me. I say all the right words. I act the part. But when it comes down to being confronted with dire circumstances, my response is far too often like Hezekiah satisfied that I'm going to be spared. But what if we were committed to spending ourselves to save others? 
mean, what if we were committed to doing this regardless of the results? Whether it works or not, whether it makes a difference or not, but if we're being faithful, if we're moved with compassion and doing what we can, spending ourselves to save others. I mean, if we would do the spending, it might just open the door for God. I mean, if we would do the spending, if we would give of ourselves, if we would sacrifice, if we would serve, if we would put others first, it might just open the door for God to do the saving. Pray for God, thank you so much for this message and for the, the heart that's expressed by Josiah, that even though his salvation was guaranteed, he had nothing to worry about in his lifetime. He was not satisfied with that move with compassion at the, the future plight of his countrymen. Maybe, maybe he was thinking about the children that were growing up in his lifetime that would be facing disaster. And even though he had no guarantees, God, his, his position was guaranteed, but he had no guarantees that his best efforts would change anything. He still felt compelled, compelled by compassion to do everything he could, to spend himself, to give everything he had. He did so much to reform Israel in hopes that it would change the outcome. So God, may we follow his example. May we follow your example, Jesus. Look at 2,000 years later, you gave everything to save us. And when we look around, we're discouraged that not, there's not more people accepting that invitation. But you're not calling us to save. That's your job. You're just calling us to spend. You're calling us to serve. You're calling us to respond, to have a conditioned response to care when it's not convenient. So move us, challenge us, lead us, God, in, in your ways and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.